This episode of the Golf.com podcast is brought to you by the USGA. It's June, which means the U.S. Open is on its way. For more information on the event in Wisconsin, visit usopen.com. Welcome to the Golf.com podcast. I'm your host, Sean Zock. Today's guest is renowned short game instructor Dave Pels. He's worked with a number of PGA Tour pros, major winners, most notably Phil Mickelson, Vijay Singh, Tom Kite. Dave has authored best-selling books on the short game. He's even been a short game instruction columnist for Golf Magazine for a number of years. And he joins us today. We're going to talk about a number of things, Phil Mickelson, the short game, what he's working on in terms of green reading, all kinds of things, how he introduced the 60 and 64 degree wedge to the PGA Tour. Dave, first and foremost, thank you for joining me today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Sean. I love to talk golf, and I look forward to talking with you. All righty. Well, I want to start at Indiana University because that's where oh. you, <laughs> that's where uh, that's kind of where I think the the public knowledge of your golf career starts. Is that right? Well, um, yeah. I mean, I I played my first tournament when I was seven, but we I don't think we need to go back and cover that one. <laughs> I shot about 150, and it was in a handicap tournament in Lexington, Kentucky, but. Anyway, yes, uh, obviously I played golf in high school at least well enough to get a golf scholarship at Indiana University, and I, I attended IU for four years on a, on a four-year golf scholarship and wanted to play the tour. That was my goal and my uh, ambition, but I, uh, I really wasn't uh, good enough to play the tour. When I uh, left Indiana, I couldn't make the tour, was not good enough, and got lucky enough I had majored in physics at Indiana, and so I got a, a really nice job at Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland, doing space research, and I loved that. I did it for 15 years and then decided that I was a golfer who loved physics rather than a physicist who loved golf, and I got back into golf. Okay, so... Uh, let, let's know, a brief interlude there. Yeah, let's let's unpack it a little bit. Uh, you go to okay. in, you go to Indiana uh, University. Uh, at the same time, there is this up and comer at another school in the Big Ten named Jack Nicholas. Is that right? <laughs> well, you see, I had uh, I was living in Cleveland, Ohio. I went to Willoughby, Ohio, in, in uh, high school, and Jack Nicholas won every tournament. I think that he played in in the junior golf in Ohio during those years and we are the same age and we're in the same class and uh, I, I played in I don't know how many tournaments uh, against Jack in Ohio as a junior but he won every I mean he beat me every time and I think he won most of them so he was very very well-known amateur got a full ride at Ohio State for golf I went to Indiana on a on a full scholarship and um, played him every year, played against him every year, IU versus Ohio State twice, uh, one home and one away. And then we played in Big Ten tournaments where he he dominated. He was quite the name, quite the young player, and I was uh, pretty much unknown and, and a nobody at, at the time and still still I still rank right in there in the among all the people on earth that Jack Nicholas has beat, I'm one of them. <laughs> yeah, he's beaten quite a few. I feel like that's a similar story yeah. to to Pat Perez' experience with Tiger Woods, growing up in the same area, playing and losing right. to well, Tiger on every level. You know, it, it, uh, people give me a lot of credit. They say, "Ooh, that was twenty, a little over twenty times." I think in my entire career that I 
played in a tournament or against Jack uh, in a match play. Uh, several matches at, at IU and uh, Ohio State, we played head to head. But uh, in twenty some times, I never beat the guy, and I I thought at the time, geez, I, how could I play against the real pros if I can't even beat this kid? And uh, people give me credit for that for being almost as good as Jack, but just because I played against him doesn't make me any better than uh, a lot of other players. I mean, Jack rule was a great player from Iowa when I was in the big 10 and uh, he, he couldn't beat Jack either, but he was good enough to play the tour. It doesn't, I just, I, you know, I'm not a bad player and I was a scratch amateur after that for many, many years, but I just, uh, uh, it, it had a, an effect on my career that said, why, if I could beat this guy in basketball, because I had, I had a basketball scholarship that I didn't take, if, if I'm a reasonable athlete and I can beat him in basketball and I'm majoring in physics and he's majoring in business, why can't I beat this guy at least occasionally? What's wrong? I took lessons. I tried my heart out. I mean, I gave it my best shot. You know, it's really a, a well-known cliche that if you can't play, teach. And And there's something to that. I'm very proud of that, actually, because not being able to beat him and, and a number of other really good players has made me think about the game and think about why I'm not good enough and why I wasn't good enough. No matter how much I practiced, I didn't get good enough. And that's what makes a good coach. So oh. I have been teaching and coaching golf now for, you know, it's like 40 years. And so I've got a lot of experience and I'm very proud of what drove me into that and what I did when I found out I really couldn't play. It's not that I can't play the game. It's that I could not play with with Jack at that time, and I'm sure Tiger later and anybody else. I feel like uh, I feel like the world does not know about your your hoops background. Uh, the fact that you had a scholarship was that also to Indiana? No. Okay. No, it was to uh, it was an engineering school. See, I had I was a uh, I guess a numbers guy in high school. And I got some, uh, I, I did get all-conference. I was an all-conference guard in basketball and I had some, some of those awards. Later, uh, you, you don't fall over when I say this because I say this very modestly. Uh, I made the Hall of Fame of Willoughby High School. All right. Uh, for athletics, but uh, that's, you know, that's Willoughby High School. That's one, one little area. And uh, it, so I could play a little bit of basketball, but... I just, I love golf. Golf is my number one sport. And so I never even considered trying to play basketball at a collegiate level. Uh, I certainly would have never been NBA quality. I'm probably in basketball very nearly, at least back then, I was at the same talent level as I was in golf. Um, I could play it, but I, w- I was not what you'd look at from an outside view saying great. Yeah. So you end up leaving Indiana. You At, at some point, like you said, you realize you're not tour worthy and you get a job working for NASA I can't imagine many college golfers end up working at NASA um, I'm just kind of curious briefly what well, that I was the only, what that experience was, was like just, yeah just to say I, it's not I mean it's, I, I'm sure somewhere else there's a, a better physicist that, that is a golfer than I am but uh, in those years again somewhat modestly I was the only athlete on athletic scholarship at Indiana University that had ever majored in physics. See, I have a BA now in physics. 
I didn't finish it on time, but I, I did finish later. I have a BA in physics, and I don't know any other physicist in the golf industry. I, there are really good engineers, but I don't know how good of players they were. And uh, there are a lot of reasons. When I got into the industry way back, I, I, I took a year's leave of absence in 75 from NASA. And I had one year to uh, enhance my, uh, I don't know, education. And I went into business. My, my NASA chief, uh, division chief said, I'll give you one year to uh, dabble in golf. And then if you, if you want to come back, you've got to, you've got, I, I didn't, I had my uh, longevity. I didn't lose any uh, uh, retirement or anything. I, I spent one year in golf and lost every dime that I had an investor group that invested in me and I lost their money uh, basically because I'm not a very good businessman, never have been, but, uh, and still today don't make any claims in business, but I have survived. And after a year being away from uh, science and research in the government uh, in space, I did enjoy being in golf and thinking about it and doing research in golf which I'd never really done before that time. I mean, I had dabbled in research while I was at NASA for 15 years, but uh, it was 14 and a half really. But I, I didn't do deep research in golf until I got into it full time. And I did a lot of research, but in that, back in those days, the big companies were Wilson, McGregor, um, thing was a very small new company. Uh, there was no tailor-made. Mm -hmm. um was there but they didn't sell any clubs they just made balls and so it was a very different golf industry than you find today it was not based on research and technology and all of the american companies wilson and mcgregor etc got bought uh, spalding was the other big one that's gone uh they didn't do research they were marketing companies mm -hmm. and so ping came in and some other companies came in and started doing research and i was there starting to do research and that changed the golf industry into uh, a different animal. I mean, now yeah. you didn't just make these wild marketing claims. You had to have something, some reason your golf club was better mm -hmm. before it would sell. And, and so since then, a lot of international companies, uh, I mean, most of the big companies now are owned by international conglomerates. And there's a lot of research that goes on in Callaway and in TaylorMade and and in Ping still is, is American owned, but most of the big companies do a lot of research and there's a lot in the golf industry that's very high tech. Back when I started, there was very little, yeah, very little technology. Yeah. And, uh, one of those things that you ended up starting, I guess, um, from what I've read, you basically brought the 60 degree wedge to tour players. Uh, <laughs> I can understand, um, I mean, nowadays it's easy to understand why that move would be made, but I want to understand why the highest lofted wedge back in the seventies was only 55 degrees. Why was that the case? Well, um, the guys that designed golf clubs back in the early days, uh, in the early 1900s, they were not scientific at all. They were simply hickory sticks. Uh, if you found a tree with a good limb and a knot in it that could be used as the head, you could make a good golf club. And uh, the irons that they made had real thick. I mean, the shafts were three quarters of an inch diameter thick wooden shafts to keep them from breaking. And they put iron heads that were made uh, 
a lot of the people that made the original golf clubs were uh, guys that made horseshoes. You know, they pounded the metal, they heated it and pounded the metal, forged it into the shape. So golf was not a, a industry that came out of science. It came out of uh, blacksmiths and uh, sportsmen. And so there was no real scientific investigation of what would work better. How, uh, how could the, the ball be flighted higher and stopped quicker so that you had better control of it? Nobody really thought of that. And so when, uh, when I got in and looked at the industry of golf, I was a, I was a research-based person. That's, I'm an experimental uh, scientist. I did space research by running experiments and measuring things, running experiments in satellites that were sent around the Earth and then to the other planets in our solar system. And uh, I would analyze the data. I looked at golf and I said, look, I'm not that good. I can't play it at the highest level. What about if I could understand it better? Maybe that would help me be a better player. So I started doing research on golf. And I found out that most of the guys on tour hit shots from the tee to the green, whether it was a driver, a three iron, a five iron, a seven iron, or a nine iron, or even a full pitching wedge, they hit it to about 7% accuracy, or 7% inaccuracy, I mean. Uh, like if they have a 100-yard shot, they hit it to about 7 yards. That's 21 feet. That's a 7% error or a 93% accuracy. Now, I thought that's very funny that, I mean, not funny, but it's very interesting that even a driver, which you hit 250 yards at the time, but if you take 7% of that, that's like, um, six, uh, if, if you take 7% of 200 yards, that's 14 yards, that's 42 feet. Uh, if you then go to 250, you know, it goes out and it's, it's the same percentage error, no matter what club they swung until they went to their sandwich. And every player that I measured, while he would hit the ball 7% accurate with a seven iron was 20 to 23% inaccurate with a wedge. And I said, why is that? It's an easier swing to make. Why do players make it less accurately? And then I looked at the data, I analyzed it, and I found out, well, the patterns are different, shot patterns. People miss long irons and drives left to right, but they all go about the same distance. Then there was only one club that they hit less than 100 yards, and that was a sand wedge. It was a 55-degree sand wedge. And so for every shot inside 100 yards, they had one club. Now, for every 10 yards over that, the 7-iron was 150, a 6-iron was 160, a 5-iron was 170, a 4-iron was 180, they had a 3-iron, a 2-iron, a 1-iron. They had irons for every yardage until they got to 100, and then they just took one iron. And I thought that was a bit unscientific. And so I said, why don't I take 100 yards, and inside of 100 yards, I'll have my 55, and I'll add a 60. I'll add another 60-degree wedge. And what happened, Sean, the unique thing, the only reason this was ever accepted is that I happened to be doing research then, and I met some tour players that were very young, Tom Kite, Jimmy Simons, Alan Miller, uh, Tom Jenkins. Uh, you know, some of them are still playing today. But I met them, and I, I measured their inaccuracy with their wedges, and I told them, you hit your long irons to 7% and your wedges to 20%. What's the matter with your wedge game? You're very weak. And Kite was very uh, offended by that. He said, hey, what are you talking about? I'm a good wedge player. 
And so he and Jenkins and Andy North and Jim Simons came into my home and we worked on their wedge games because they scientifically were worse at wedges than they were at seven irons. And I would compete with them. I mean, I was still young enough and had enough game that with my wedges, with a 60-degree wedge, which they did not know was 60 degrees, I, I built the first 60-degree wedge that was ever made. And then I competed with them and could beat them in the up-and-down game around the green. Their touch, so just, their touch that, wasn't there? Their touch, their control, their backspin, their, their ability to control the ball on a soft, delicate wedge shot with a 55 could not compete with my somewhat less physical ability, but better equipment. Yeah. And a 60 degree wedge. And so immediately, I mean, Tom Jenkins was the first one. He said, Pelsey, look, I, I respect what you're telling me, but I know you're not a better wedge player than I am. I know that. I see the way you swing your wedge. You're not better than I am. The fact that you're beating me must be, you've got better equipment. So could you let me borrow your club? And you borrow mine, and we'll compete again. And, of course, I said yes, and, of course, he killed me. And as soon as the players found out that, hey, it really is easier to hit a 60-degree wedge around the greens, the soft shots, the delicate shots, the cut shots, or just the normal pitch shots, it's a lot easier to control a 60-degree wedge than it is 55. As soon as they learned that, they all wanted me to make wedges for him. I made the first 60-degree wedge for Tom Kite, welded it, uh, cut the hosel off, welded it back at a different angle, ground the sole the way he liked it, and he went out and he became the leading money winner on the tour the next year in 81. And um, he won most improved player. And that was the birth of the 60-degree wedge. <laughs> we, called it, we called it a lofted wedge, an L wedge. But then Ping was a very bright company with a, with a pretty smart uh, CEO. And he said, well, look, let's make an, an L wedge at 60 degrees, and we'll call it the lob wedge. <laughs> and so commercially, they're the first company that came in with the lofted, the L wedge. And I don't care whether you call it lofted or lob, or you could call it lion loft for all I care. <laughs> but it was a 60-degree loft wedge. And as that became more popular on tour, every player that I worked with um, – when I could beat them with a wedge, they would then take the 60-degree wedge and beat me, and everything would be fine. They'd go out on the tour, and they'd make more money. I'm sure they liked now, that. It was really strange back then that people said, well, geez, isn't it harder to hit for some reason? Isn't there a reason that nobody's ever done this before? And there was no good reason that nobody ever did it before, and it's not harder to hit. I mean, as long as you accelerate through impact, all wedges are about the same. In, in difficulty to hit. I mean, you've got to hit through it and you've got to be accelerating and you can't be hitting up on it. You've got to hit either horizontal, just kissing the turf or hitting down mm -hmm. a descending blow. You can't hit up on it or you won't be a very good wedge player, but that's true for any club. I mean, that's what Mickelson is doing today. He's got probably the best wedge uh, game in the world. Yeah. That there's ever been. And he, he plays, you know, some courses, He's been known to play with five wedges. That's uh, every every course he carries four wedges, but some of them he carries five. Because the truth is, you can always leave out a longer iron in, if your wedge will help your game around the greens. Because 
you can't hit the long iron straight enough to make the next putt anyway. <laughs> so the di- distance control that the uh, you lose by taking out a long iron doesn't matter much because you're too far left or right anyway mm-hmm. to make the next putt. But if you if you take an extra lofted wedge on these fast greens of today, then you can stop it quicker and land it softer and have more control around the greens. So by research, we can tell you people with a good 64-degree wedge game can beat people that don't have a 64-degree wedge. Now that makes sense. Uh, yeah. What... Well, it's all just it's not rocket science. It's just, <laughs> it's just talent sense. And now, one quick message from the USGA. You may know the USGA for their 14 annual championships, which are widely regarded as the ultimate tests in golf. But there's more to the USGA than just the golf competitions. In fact, USGA scientists are currently working on what they call health of the game solutions. They're helping golf facilities reduce their reliance on water. The USGA innovation team has launched a resource management app that helps course superintendents better allocate their resources and ensure a better experience for golfers. That better experience is exactly what the USGA wants golf to be both now and 50 years down the line in the future. That's why they're also modernizing the game's rules in conjunction with the RNA over in Scotland. And with that, they want your help. Visit USGA.org to check out the list of proposed rules changes that are expected to go into effect January 1, 2019. You can share your feedback with golf's governing bodies there online and help them in their grassroots growing of the game. And now, back to Dave Pels. You've worked with Phil for a number of years, and I'm wondering if there is a moment, a story, a shot that he pulled off around you. Um, is there a great story of a short game shot that you know, you thought, hey, Phil, this, this thing's impossible. He, you cannot do it. And then he ended up doing it. Actually, there is one. There, there is a shot at um, one of the great courses in New York. Wingfoot. Wingfoot. That's what I'm thinking. I, I was thinking least. Uh, I was looking, uh, <laughs> thinking of the wings. Yeah, it's Wingfoot. Wingfoot. Okay. Now, the 10th hole is a par three. And I don't know if you've ever looked at the left front pin and and uh, then look down to the right short of the green and see it's uh, 20 feet or maybe 15 feet below the surface. Uh, it's skinned. It's, they had uh, mowed it, shaved it. Uh, the ball rolled way off. Phil missed the green just short, and it backed down, and he missed it to the right. And he had an impossible shot there on a hard pan lie. And... Uh, every other player in the tournament that played from there hit it up into the heart of the green and then put it back to the left front because it's so narrow and so hard and so fast and so impossible to get the shot. And Phil went down there with a 64 and laid it wide open and swung out of his shoes and hit the ball about, I don't know, 40 yards in the air, 40 yards up, but it was only a 20 yard shot. So it goes 40 or 50 yards up and 20 yards out lands by the pin and just stops dead still. And, makes an easy part. He goes on and he should have won the tournament. He ended up, mm-hmm. his driving wasn't very good that week. He only hit two fairways around, uh, but his short game was magical. It's the best I've ever measured and uh, best I've ever seen. I think and that... he stood on the last hole. He stood on the last hole uh, with a one shot lead. All he had to do was par and he doubled, drove it into the tent and then hit a tree on a second shot. One putted for a six and he lost by one shot. But that shot, just to let you know, not only could Phil hit it, 
But then uh, I'm following and I'm taking data. And he walks over to the side of the rope on the 11th hole. And uh, the, I mean, the side of the fairway. And, and I'm standing there and he says, Pelsey, I want to tell you something. I, I know you saw that shot back on 10. And I have this club that I've invented. It's a 64 degree wedge. And remind me to tell you about it. Tell you why it's so fantastic. I'll let you in on my secret someday. <laughs> he said that with a dead straight face and walked away. He was just joking on the fact that at the time, he, when Phil Mickelson picks up a 64 degree wedge, it's news. Yeah. When Dave Pulse picks it up, it's not news. It's not a big deal. And so he was just teasing me that after working with it for two years, he had so much confidence with it and he really believes it's a great club. Um, and he just, he's a, he, he's a teaser. He says things like that to me all the time. I mean, we, this is my 14th year of working with Phil and he's still just, uh, if you can't take a joke, you cannot be a friend of Phil Mickelson. <laughs> I like that. Um, I want to get to what you're working on here in one second, but I got one more question on Phil and your, your okay. work with him. Um, do you, do you work with him on like a regulated basis? Like it's, you know, once every two months or it's two weeks prior to a major, how do you guys work together and how do you kind of dial in his, his short game if it needs to be dialed in? Well, there's no rule. It's uh, it's all up to Phil. It's his schedule. And I just try to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. Uh, I, I try to help him when he wants and needs help. In the 14 years that we've worked together, we've worked every January. Uh, I go to the West Coast. I used to have a little condo in Palm Springs, and he has a membership at one of the clubs in Palm Springs. He lives in San Diego. He would come up to Palm Springs. I would go down to San Diego. Uh, we, we've always worked in January to, to, to just, just uh, check his mechanics, uh, make sure he's hitting the ball solid, make sure his game is, is tunable. And then he starts working on tuning it up. And we do that in three, you know, two or three or four days. It's always been something in that area before the season starts, we work. And then we work whenever he wants help on tuning up his wedge game, short game or putting we work. And then, um, it so happens that another, Mickelson's story, the reason he came to me and asked me to work with him was that he said, I'm trying to find a quarter of a shot around in major tournaments. I've played in 43 majors and I've never won one. Can you help me? And I said, well, I've never seen a player yet that is as good as he could possibly be with his wedges. And I'm sure there's a quarter of a shot around in there if, if we work hard. And I said, I don't know where it is. I don't know anything about your game, but let's try it. So I started working with him, and that was in January of 2004. And in March, I said, listen, if you really want to win a major, I want you to come with me. Let's go together, and let's work on all the short shots around the greens that you're going to miss at the major, and we'll tune you up for those greens. And he said, no, I've, I've already played the Masters 10 times. And... Uh, I know the course. Uh, I know Augusta. There's, it's a wasted round. I mean, it would be a wasted few days. And I said, well, uh, you know, that's not quite true. Have you hit every – have you prepared by hitting every chip shot to every pin position on every green? That's 18 greens with four pin positions 
that's a lot of, you know, 72 pitch shots that you might have during this tournament. And if you hit every one of them already so that there are no surprises, you know that this is more of a downslope than it looks or it kicks harder right than it looks or it uh, uh, stops quicker than it might you might think it would. No surprises. That was my, my theme at the time. If you go into this uh, major with no surprises, hit all – See, when you hit a bad shot, Sean, there's no protecting against a bad shot. I don't worry about any pro hitting a bad shot. They don't hit very many bad ones. What they do is they hit a lot of really good shots, but they're not the right shot. They didn't. They don't know what's going to happen when the ball hits the green. They don't know how fast it's going to stop. And even though they hit it well, the result doesn't end up inside of six feet where you're going to make most of your putts. It ends up outside of 10 feet where you're going to miss most of them. Mm-hmm. And that's an incredible difference just getting your pitch shots to go inside of six feet instead of outside of 10 feet. That's a difference so we maker. Discussed, we, we discussed this for a while and Phil decided, no, I, listen, I really do. I, I know the Augusta greens, so I don't need to go there early. And I said, wait a minute, Phil, uh, let me ask you a question. How many majors have you played in? And he said, 43. How many have you won? None. That's the whole reason I'm here working with you. And I said, well, wait a minute. If, if, who told you how to prepare for your 43 majors? And he said, me, I did. <laughs> and I said, and you're 0 for 43 your way. Why don't you try one my way? And that piece of logic, not the fact that he would have no surprises, but the piece of logic that said, I'm 0 for 43 my way. Let me try Pelva's way once. And we went the week before the Masters in 2004 we went to Augusta. We spent one day on the front nine working around the greens, hitting pitch shots. We spent one day on the back nine hitting pitch shots to every pin position that we think that would be reasonable for him to have. And uh, he won the tournament a week yeah. later. And since that time, now that was 2004, since then I've been to every major with him before the, two, the week of the tournament, usually one to two sometime three or four weeks before depending on his schedule except when i'm sick or he has a scheduling conflict where he can't go Mm -hmm. and i when i say i'm sick um i you may or may not be aware that i fought sick cancer two and a half years ago and in those two and a half years i have not been up to the uh, effort of getting around a golf course yet Mm mm-hmm so I haven't. Uh, I'm I'm fine. I'm cancer free now, but I'm very weak in in the muscles. I don't know if you're familiar. The uh, therapy for, for cancer really uh, uh, weakens your muscles mm-hmm. uh, as it drives your testosterone down, which feeds the cancer, and they're trying to get rid of the cancer. So I did. I got rid of it. I went to MD Anderson, the best place on earth to uh, uh, fight cancer. I'm convinced. Uh, Phil sent me there to the best doctor I've ever met and, and they've just done a fabulous job and so I'm feeling great uh, I, I'm just weak I don't have the stamina but I'm going to starting next year I'm going to be going again and uh, it's great to hear that you're on the mend it's uh, well thank you it's I, I, I didn't tell many people in the golf industry I just kind of disappeared and uh, I didn't want everybody worrying about me and asking all the questions so I just but now I'm fine I'm over it and all I've got to do is a little rehab, and I'll be back to uh, full steam here. All right. Well, that's good to hear. Let's uh, let's move on then to what you're going to be focusing on, 
which you already have been focusing on, what you're going to okay. end well, up. During the cancer, yeah, during the cancer period, uh, I didn't get out much, but I've done a lot of thinking and a lot of research and a lot of, uh, I've got a, a staff at my company, the, we call it the uh, Pell's Golf Institute. And we, we have several uh, employees that spend hours and hours and hours doing research with me and for me. Uh, and we, we, we call it a nonprofit, although it's not a nonprofit. We've never applied to be a nonprofit. We just don't make any money doing research. Uh, it just costs us money. So we, we kind of, that's why we named it the Pell's Golf Institute because it always loses money. But anyway, with these people, I have done a lot of research. Both my sons are part of this effort. And uh, one of them has uh, a degree in engineering and the other one has a degree in physics and engineering. And so we're very scientifically oriented group. And uh, we decided to take green reading on as our project because golfers don't know how to read greens very well. And we, we decided to adopt a theme, green reading would be better than green guessing. <laughs> because most people that hold a plumb bob up and they guess how much the putt's going to break, uh, I call it a guess because we've proven scientifically that plumb bobs don't work. Okay. There is no fundamental phys- uh, principle in physics that will allow a plumb bob to tell you how much a putt will break. And then there are other people that, you know, they just squat down, get real low. Have you ever seen uh, Camilo Villegas get lay way down low and oh, read yeah. the green? Oh, well, yeah. the side slope that he's looking at is not the slope that determines how much his ball is going to break. Think of this, Sean. If you stand behind your ball in a line with a hole, okay, there's a ball hole line. Mm-hmm. And you get on it behind the ball and you squat down and you look at that angle. Let's say it's higher on the right than it is on the left. So the putt's going to break right to left, right? Yeah. If you can imagine that now. That's the angle that everybody looks at, the the side slope, the angle of the side slope. Then if they decide it's going to break from right to left, they putt it off to the right. The ball never rolls on that angle. They're reading an angle that has very little, if anything, to do with how much the putt breaks. And based on that scientific knowledge, we have, uh, I can't, I can't think how many hours, I have no idea how many hours we've spent, but we've made all the measurements. We've created the mathematical models. We've determined a new way to read greens. It's a new paradigm. It's not reading the side slope that your ball's sitting on. And you can read it, read it in the same amount of time. And you can read it much more accurately and much easier if you look at the right things from the right positions. But to show golfers this, we've decided to write a book, and it's got to have three-dimensional graphics, embedded videos in the, in the book itself, or video, DVD videos to go along beside the book. And it's a real project. We've, we've learned how to read it. We've got it. We've finalized it. And we've written the draft of the book now. So but we'll see. Yeah, I, I remember. I mean, I've looked at the Kickstarter. I've looked at the the video. Call it a hype video, almost. Um, is that you? You you promise multiple secrets. And before I let you go, I just kind of I need to ask: Is there is there any detail that you can tempt viewers with that you can tempt <laughs> listeners with to say, "Hey, this well, is this is the kind of thing yeah. that I'm putting together. Uh, this is what you might get." Listen, there are seven secrets. Okay. And I'll. 
that's that's what I'm going to tell you about. See, what I don't want to do, Sean, and I know this sounds silly, but there are right now there are 500 plus people that have sent $70 to Kickstarter. They haven't sent the money to me. They sent it to Kickstarter. And I want them to be the first people that know. Mm-hmm. What I'm going to do is if it funds, I'm going to do the Kickstarter uh, uh, program. I'll, I'll do the video this summer and the graphics and the programming. And I'm going to send, I'm going to tell those secrets to the Kickstarter backers first. Then I will tell the world. Okay. Because I want the world to know and, and read greens better. And what it is, I can tell you this, it's looking at a different, it's looking from a different place and looking for different things and reading break in a new and revolutionary paradigm that is different than what everyone, including myself, for my entire golf career uh, up until two years ago uh, did. I did it wrong myself up until two years ago. So I'm, I'm surprised no one has done this before, but I'm not surprised because it is a different way to look at it and a different uh, technique and a different paradigm that we'll be reading greens. But I promise you, if you read the book, look at the video, understand the system, it's not that difficult. In fact, it's no more difficult than what you're doing today. It's just different. Looking for different things from different positions. And you can learn the, the actual break of a putt much more accurately. And the better you read greens, the better you putt. Yeah. That's a proven fact. Yeah. Well, you've got me excited. I, well, I, I, I would, I'd appreciate it if our listeners would uh, come on Kickstarter. What you do is you come to pelsgolf.com forward slash green reading, and that takes you right to Kickstarter. It doesn't even come to our website. It's awesome. pelsgolf.com forward slash green reading. Well, I, t- I tend to think that the, uh, the people who listen to this podcast are people who are avidly care about their game. So I imagine that a number of people will go, at least go and check it out, what Dave Pels is working on. Over there, um, well, we'll yeah, in, we'll show you the tools we've been working with, the measurements we've been making, and uh, we hope you'll join us in bringing this to life. It's an exciting prospect to think that everybody in golf can read greens better in the coming years, and uh, that's exciting to me to be able to make this contribution to the game. Well, you heard the man. You can go check that out at Dave's website. Thank you to Dave for joining us today. Thanks to you for listening to the Golf.com podcast. We've got a number of good episodes lined up uh, for the U.S. Open in the coming weeks between both myself and Alan Shipnuck. Looking forward to getting over to Aaron Hills myself and seeing everything that the USGA has set up for us over there. Until then, I'm your host, Sean Zock. Sean Zock.